Thank you for listening to a sermon from Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Kenmore, New York. Our senior pastor is Justin Olivetti. To reach Knox Church, please email us at office at knoxepc.com or call us at 716-873-2423. To request prayer, email us at prayerchain at knoxepc.com. Now, let's listen. You please join me as we open our Bibles to Mark chapter 16 today. This is it. The last Mark sermon. You've survived 48 weeks. Please stand with me as we read these final verses from Mark's Gospel. Read the first eight verses here. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he had told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out, and they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. May God bless this reading of his word. Have a seat. The very ending of Mark's gospel has puzzled Christians and scholars for thousands of years. You might notice if you actually opened up your Bible, if you had that Bible open, did you notice the ending is a little, that last chapter is really odd, isn't it? Everything after verse 8 in most Bibles today is set apart, usually much smaller text, and it has a warning that the following verses are most likely not Scripture. That there's no evidence that from verse 9 on that any of those verses existed in the second, prior to the second or third centuries. But you can see the problem, can't you? Without those extra verses, without verse 9 on, the book of Mark seems to end on a cliffhanger. The women are told that Jesus is risen. They flee from the tomb, and then it just kind of ends. We don't get the resolution we're expecting. We don't see the risen Lord, or we don't hear his words. We get fear, trembling, and an empty tomb. It's no wonder that early Christian copyists decided to cobble together a new and improved ending. For Mark, out of the verses, they took verses from the other Gospels, some verses from Acts, and they made it sound all gospely, and then they shoved it right in there at the end of Mark. And that new and improved ending became widely read among the Roman Catholic Church, and by the time the King James Version of the Bible was printed, that ending of Mark was added into it. But over the last 100 or 150 years, I don't think you could find a serious biblical scholar or a commentary that would defend the longer ending of Mark as Scripture. 
from through verse 8, you have sacred scripture, but from verse 9, it's a, a whole human patchwork project. So I just want to put that out there. Now, the prevailing theory is that Mark actually did write a longer ending to his gospel, but that longer ending somehow got lost to history. We no longer have it. We're not going to recover it. It's just out there. And so we have this truncated ending of Mark. But I would like to, to argue that through verse 8 is the exact ending that Mark intended. That's what I truly believe. You can d decide on your own. But I would like to argue that that's exactly where he intended to finish his work. We need to keep in mind two things here. As we've learned over the last 48 weeks, as we've looked at Mark, that Mark is all about a fast-moving narrative. He really is just going very boom, 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 right through Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, his miracles, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and he gets to this point and he crashes to an end. And that's not out of, out of line for what we know about how Mark writes his, his gospel. He gets to the punch. So ending on an announcement that uh, there's this announcement of a risen G Jesus is a climax of his story. It's that big moment, and then Mark lowers the curtain, and there's, there's the end. But the second reason why I think that this very well might be the ending he intended is because, again, who is Mark primarily writing to? He's writing to the Romans and the Christian Romans in, in Rome. And these didn't happen like you know, 50 or 100 years after Christ had risen. So Mark wrote his gospel. He's the first gospel writer. So he wrote his gospel about 20 or 25 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. A lot of eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection were still alive, were still in that community. They knew the ending of the story. They knew a risen Christ but they didn't know everything that led up to it exactly. So Mark was more concerned with getting them everything up to the moment that they knew than with providing more information about his resurrection. But in any case, it is the text we are given. And in these eight verses, we get to the bottom line of our faith. What is, if somebody asks you, what is the bottom line of Christianity? What is the bottom line of everything you believe? Really quickly, I'm going to give that to you. The bottom line of our faith that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is it. Every Sunday here at Knox, not just Easter Sunday, but every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We don't worship a dead God. We don't worship a God who has been a God of myth, a God of fable. We worship a living God who was resurrected, he ascended, and he's on the throne of heaven. But I don't want to just take that for granted. Did the resurrection actually happen? And if it did, what does that mean for us? That's what we're going to look at today. So last week we gave a lot of praise to Jesus' support team. Do you remember we talked about how he had this support team of women who Mark mentioned as providing for him out of their finances, providing for his, out of hospitality. They would be the people who are providing for Jesus and the disciples so that they could go and do the ministry. So they were the, the support team. And in their opening verses of Mark 16, we don't see the apostles coming back to the tomb and, and treating Jesus' body. We see the support team, this wonderful support team of the women, Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome, going to the tomb for their final duty to their Lord. 
See, they didn't, have, they didn't have to do anything else after this point, but they wanted to give their love and honor to Jesus Christ by properly preparing his body because it had been abruptly put into the tomb before the Sabbath. And there's nothing about their approach to the tomb to suggest that they expect anything other than to find a sealed tomb and a still body lying on a shelf there. Of course, that's not what they encounter, is it? They get there, the stone's been rolled away, they're really puzzled at that. Then the body's missing, they're suddenly they're taken aback, and there's, a, there's an angel there, sitting there like it's the most natural thing in the world, announcing the resurrection of Christ. Now, the, I, I love that we have both an outsider and an insider perspective here. The women are the outsiders, they're coming in, they don't have a clue what's happening, but the angel is the insider perspective. He's delivering the truth just as Jesus has predicted it over the course of Mark a half dozen times now. He has risen. He is not here, the angel says. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. So go. Go see him. Catch up with him. Now I have been to, I've officiated over many funerals in my life. If I can be honest with you for a moment, the ones that always slightly unnerve me are the open casket funerals. I will go up and I'll pay my respects over a body, but I'll be looking down at this person who is no, no longer a person. They're, it's just a body. Who they were is, is gone. But there's always that moment, maybe it's an overactive imagination on my part, where I think they're going to just open their eyes and sit right up. And I'm sorry, that sounds immature, but it, it always goes through my head. And I think that if that ever happened... I would trade places with the person in the casket because my heart would not be able to take it, right? So I want us to just imagine the fear and agitation and bewilderment of the women. People don't just rise from the dead. People don't recover from a crucifixion. You know how many crucifixions have ever been recorded in all of Roman history where people, after they took him down from the cross, were revived? Zero. There has been absolutely nobody that they ever recorded as somehow coming back from that. And yet on this sad, sorrowful day that they started in such deep grief, they are given by an angel the happiest news of their life. Can you imagine their extreme emotional swing from grief to joy? I mean, that takes a lot to process. When it says that they're speechless and trembling, of course they're speechless and trembling. Somebody who died in your life, who died and somebody said, oh, by the way, they just came back to life. I don't think you would be able to process that with words. You would have fear and trembling in your heart. Mark 28, by the way, adds that their journey from the tomb was not one that was sad. I know Mark, Mark here says that they left with fear, but somewhere along the way that fear turned to joy. But Matthew 28 said that their journey was a joyous one. It's one where they looked at each other and they're laughing. They have bounding steps. They're smiling. Their Lord is risen. By the way, the angel doesn't just state this and say, well, by the way, the Lord is risen. All right, my duty's done. Head back to heaven now. He says, your Lord is risen. Go see the evidence. Go see him. See, he says, you've, you've had that evidence. You can go actually get the proof that this has happened. And with that, Mark kind of crashes to a close. The Lord is risen. 
Go see that proof. And he ends. Like the parables that Jesus preached, the ending of Mark demands a response on the part of the reader. Demands a response from us. Now what? Now that you've been told Jesus is risen. Now that you've seen an empty tomb. Now that you've lived in a world where the good news is preached far and wide. What will you do with that? What will you do with that? Mark has given you all of the evidence you need to make up your mind. You've read the teachings of Christ, the miracles, the authority, the power, his identity, his death, his resurrection. So do you continue to doubt? Do you deny? Do you delay? Do you put that off maybe onto your dying day? I'll, I'll, I'll make up my mind then. Or do you run as the women did to see a living Jesus? Now I went to a, a Christian high school in Indianapolis And as an avid reader, I got very well acquainted with the library there. And let me tell you, it was one of the strangest libraries I have ever seen in my life. It was a weird library. I think they would shelve any book that had the word God in it. Even if that book was full of heresy or was full of horror, there were some books in there that were really scary. And I don't think the librarian even knew. But one day I was kind of perusing the shelves, and I found an interesting-looking book. And the book was called... The Skeleton in God's Closet. I went, oh, this sounds intriguing. This sounds like a hint of scandal. I'll pull it down. Um, It wasn't a very good book. I don't really recommend you reading it. It's not a very well-written novel. But what what happened in this book was that I guess the author had read the shorter ending of Mark. And his mind, his imagination started going. And so he wrote a book on the hypothesis, what if people found Jesus' skeleton? What if one day archaeologists uncovered a tomb and in it was the body of Jesus, the leftovers, the remnants of Jesus? And the author was asking that question of what would happen if the resurrection wasn't true? It's not the first time the resurrection has ever been called into doubt when people have been questioning the resurrection of Christianity because on the resurrection, it rests all of Christianity. It would crumble without the resurrection. It would fall apart. If people could today unearth evidence that there, by the way, is Jesus' body, that he never did rise from the dead, within the span of a day, all of historic Christianity would fall apart in a moment. It would just fall apart. Don't take that from me, by the way. That's not my opinion. That comes straight from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. He says, that he boldly proclaims the reality of the resurrection. He said, the resurrection did happen. But he says, but what if it didn't? What if it didn't happen? He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then for those who have also fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, that we worship Jesus in this world, We of all people are to be pitied. That's what Paul said. It's incredibly grim. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, then you are still damned in your sins. And not only that, but all Christians are a laughing stock, and everybody who's died before us is lost forever. That's the high stakes of the resurrection. That's why we place so much emphasis on that. Yet there will be many who will argue that the resurrection is false. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus actually did die on the cross, 
but he only came back as a spirit. If you ask a, a Muslim friend, you say, well, what happened to Jesus Christ? They say, well, when he was on the cross, Allah swapped his body out for somebody else. He, t- he actually took Jesus up to heaven and swapped his body out for some poor guy that he got off the street, suddenly found himself dying on a cross. That's what they believe. So Jesus didn't actually fully die on the cross. Some will theorize that Jesus fainted on the cross. We talked about that last week. Or that his body was stolen. Or that the women simply went to the wrong tomb. They got the wrong address. That if it was men going to the tomb, I could buy that. But women seem to know where things are. So my favorite theory, and I'm not even making this up, but there is a theory out there. Not a, not a huge theory, but I love this one is that Jesus had an identical twin. And on Christmas, on Easter morning, he decided that would be a great time to show up and say, hey guys, what did I miss? You know, by the way, you know, I'm Jesus. But when it comes down to it, there are really just three options for the resurrection. If we're going to be logical about it. One, that it was a hoax fabricated by the disciples that wanted to get famous and rich They decide, well, we're just going to piggyback off of whatever fame Jesus had, and we're going to run with it. Two, that it was a fictional myth that sprang up over time, as myths tend to do. Or three, that it's historical fact. Those are the three options. Last week, I had a former youth group student call me, and I asked him how his faith was doing. And he said, well, I'm not really a Christian, Pastor Justin, but I'm spiritual. Anybody ever tell you that? I don't really believe in Jesus, but I'm spiritual. I always really want definition at that point. What does that mean to you when you're spiritual? He said, well, Pastor Justin, I, I believe that there is a God, but I, I don't think what the Bible says is true. It's not a rational book. And that's what he said to me. I said, okay. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll take you up on that. I'll challenge you to look at the Bible as a rational book because I think the Bible is nothing but a rational book. The Bible is nothing but God giving you evidence over and over again and facts about the state of the world and the state of our sin and historical details so that you can decide with your own mind what to do with that evidence. And I encouraged him to, to investigate the facts. I just said, don't, I'm not telling you to take things on blind faith. I don't believe in blind faith. I believe in faith that is based on something real. I wouldn't stake my, my eternal salvation, my eternal life, on something that I'm just hoping is right. I want it to absolutely be the real thing. So I encouraged him to investigate that. I gave him some books and said, we'll talk to you later about that. But I would say to anybody who can't accept the resurrection as rational, I would, not cheekily, I would just ask them this question, where is the body? Where's the body? Actually, I could, bless you, I could ask a lot more questions, couldn't I? I could ask, like, why would the disciples go from being cowering scared, sorrowful guys to perpetrating one of the biggest hoaxes in history that they gladly, by the way, 11 out of the 12, gladly went to their own deaths for. Why would they do that? Why would the gospel writers use women who were not as highly regarded in antiquity, their testimonies were not as highly regarded as men? Sorry, that's just how it used to be. Why would the gospel writers use women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? Why would the Gospels have that authentic nature to them? Why would J- Jesus' brother James and the Pharisee Saul, who are both antagonistic toward Christ, 
suddenly become Christians and believe in him and follow him? Why would Christianity explode throughout an empire that persecuted it? The problem with all the theories that I told you earlier is that they don't really stand up to a careful analysis, a rational analysis of the biblical and historical data. All the evidence that's out there, all the rational facts. They don't explain the radical change in the lives of the disciples, the authentic nature of the accounts, and all, by the way, of the post-resurrection appearances and the eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus Christ. I'll tell you this, Jewish, Rome, Jewish leaders and the Romans, if they could have, they would have dug up a body to show people, to prove that Christianity wasn't real. They would have gotten that body back if they could have, and they couldn't. A good rule of thumb I, I often counsel for Christians is that if the Bible is, is, is absent or vague on a topic, we need to be very, very cautious about developing kind of a doctrine in our life on that. But where the Bible is firm, where it states something over and over and over again, we need to go to the mat for it. And there's absolutely nothing more firm in the New Testament than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to go to the mat for that. If, you, if you're talking with somebody, if you're struggling with that, I, I would say don't take it on, on my opinion. Don't take it on blind faith. Investigate the facts. Read the Gospels. Look at how they lay out the evidence for you. How they walk you through it step by step. Wrestle with that and ask yourself, where is the body? Now there is nothing more thrilling to the ears of a Christian than the good news of the resurrection. But what does it mean? What are the implications? If Jesus is indeed raised from the dead, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Let me say this. I think it's very important to understand this. Jesus' saving work took place in three parts. First, he was born, as we see on Christmas season. He was born and had to live in perfect obedience to the law so that he could be a, a sacrifice to be worthy of the cross. He had to be, live a perfect life. Second, he had to die to atone for our sins. That's his saving work on the cross, that he dies to atone for your sins. But third, he had to be resurrected in order to make us alive again and to bring us into salvation. He could atone for you on the cross, but if he never came back, you still couldn't be saved. You couldn't be saved in your sin. Three parts. 1 Corinthians 15 is the kind of go-to chapter in the Bible about the meaning of the resurrection. So I recommend... I, challenge you this week to read 1 Corinthians 15 and study it. Paul argues for the resurrection, speculates, as we just read, what it might mean if it wasn't true, but then clearly lays out what it does mean. What are the implications that it is true? Best verses in the, in the world. This is the best thing I could give you on a Christmas week. Verses 20 through 22, Paul says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, so the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There is such an actual, tangible hope to these verses of a real future in our lives here that we can expect to enjoy. Because Christ lives, so will we who believe. Because Christ is risen, so will all who have died in him. 
One day, every Christian is going to walk into the greatest party you have ever seen in your life. You're not only going to be enjoying great food, but you're going to be rubbing shoulders with the apostles, with Abraham, with King David. You're going to, be, you're going to be meet Abraham Lincoln and John Knox and Martin Luther and all these great Christians and our beloved relatives and our friends who have also died in Christ. And on that day, we will raise a glass and we will toast the king who sits at the head of that party, the king who died for us celebrating his work that culminated in us being named sons and daughters of the king, being adopted into that family. In Acts 4, going ahead a little bit, but Acts 4, the apostles had not come down off of this cloud of joy that they had been living in ever since they heard about and then saw for their own eyes the risen Lord. In fact, it said they had, they had been going around to others proclaiming the resurrection. That's the phrase used there. Not proclaiming the cross or proclaiming the manger or proclaiming walking on water or turning water into wine or healing the leper, but they proclaimed the resurrection. That's what really got them excited. When you get the resurrection, when you understand what it really means, when you have examined its truthfulness, its rationality, when you have invited it into your life, Christ's fate becomes your own. It will change you. There is no better place to end Mark's gospel than on the life-changing proclamation of He is risen. And what do we say on Easter morning? He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You are risen. You have ascended to Your throne and You are King over the universe. And You we worship. And Lord, not only are You King, but You have extended to us grace. A grace that if we will just believe, You will give to us salvation, forgiveness, and a place in Your family. And Lord, there's no greater Christmas gift than that. Lord, we praise you because you are risen, because you are a good God, and we love you very much. In your name, amen. If you would like to have an elder pray with you or to talk with, we'll have one available on the front after the service. But please receive the benediction now from 1 Thessalonians. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you again for listening. It is our sincere prayer that today's message has brought you closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We welcome you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. You can also audio stream our full service. Details can be found at our website. Our church is fully wheelchair accessible and loop enabled for the hearing impaired. For a full schedule of activities and more information on our beliefs, visit our website at www.noxepc.com or call our church office at 716-873-2423.